Through the history of Freemasonry, we've acquired some really amazing artifacts and literary resources that deserve to be preserved, archived, and studied. We're going to be talking about all that and more with some of the experts at the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library in the Northern Masonic Jurisdiction. So stick with us. We have an excellent show for you lined up right after this on Historical Light. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminating our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. Enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome back to another episode of Historical Light. I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers. This is a Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. We have some amazing guests this evening from the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library, the Northern Masonic Jurisdiction. Uh, we have Jeff, Rich, and Hillary, and I'm going to hand it over to you guys for some more proper introductions of yourself. Uh, just in order on my screen, uh, Jeff, will you mind going first? Sure, not at all. Thanks very much, Alex. My name is Jeff Croto, and I am the Director of Library and Archives at the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library in Lexington, Massachusetts, where I have been since 2007. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. Hillary, how about you? Uh, I also work at the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library, and I've been there uh, for a little bit over 20 years. Fantastic. Good evening, Rich. How are you doing? I am doing great, Alex. First of all, I want to thank you for this uh, very gracious opportunity to participate in this program tonight. Uh, we certainly appreciate that. Uh, so my name is Rich Elliott, and I'm the Executive Director of the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library in Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, I had the opportunity to step into this role at the beginning of 2021, uh, officially retired from a, a previous uh, career, and uh, very, very Grateful that I have the opportunity to work for this, uh, this this very, very talented staff. Fantastic. We are thrilled to have you guys here this evening. Uh, Historical Light is totally focused around the history of Freemasonry, and we really push about archival digitizing. So the work that you guys do is right down our alley, and I can't wait to hear all about the history of your operation, what you guys have going on today. Uh, we typically start this off with a little bit of icebreakers, though, just to get to know our, our guests uh, on a personal level. Um, let's start off with Hillary. Do you have any connection with Freemasonry outside of this being your job? Uh, no, not really. Uh, okay. I, I came to the museum because I had experience working with historical objects, and artifacts, and a background in material culture, and a lot of experience working on exhibitions. And uh, I've been at the museum for a while now, and I've had a chance to learn a lot about Freemasonry, but I don't have any familial connections to the organization. Fantastic. Uh, how about you, Jeff? Do you got any family history or anything in Freemasonry before this? Uh, similar to Hillary, I actually have no Masons in my family, as far as I know. And uh, as with Hillary, uh, I ended up at the museum uh, professionally. I had I was in museum libraries uh, before I came to the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library. And so I came there uh, as someone who had worked in libraries and museums previously. And I've learned an awful lot about uh, Freemasonry and fraternalism uh, in the time that I've been there. Whether you wanted to or not, right? <laughs> Whether I wanted to or not. That's right. That's fantastic. How about you, Rich? Uh, so I, I do have some history in uh, my family. My my uh, grandfather was a Mason, uh, past master of the lodge here in Hampton, New Hampshire. Uh, my dad is a Mason, uh, 94 years old, continues to be very committed and dedicated to uh, our Scottish Rite and his Blue Lodge. Uh, and I also have an uncle that, that uh, was a Mason and, and a past master of the lodge here in Hampton. So I, I joined Masonry in 1978, uh, became uh, master of my lodge here in Hampton, New Hampshire in 1985 and served that lodge for a year. Uh, I've been very involved in uh, both uh, Blue Lodge Masonry and, and most particularly Scottish Rite Masonry, although I do belong to several other independent organizations in Masonry. 
uh, my commitment has been to Scottish Rite. Uh, I've served uh, Scottish Rite, our Scottish Rite here in the Northern jurisdiction in several uh, capacities over the years uh, and on several committees. And uh, as the conversation continues here tonight, we may find out a little bit more about uh, some of those things. Fantastic. That's that's really cool. So we've, we've got this perspective of both inside masonry and outside masonry on that professional level. That's really awesome. And I'm excited to hear how that adds into the operation that you have going on today. So before we get into the uh, the meat and potatoes of this episode this evening, which I cannot wait to dive into, I do want to give a huge shout out to our supporters over on Patreon. Been around since 2016, and those of you that help support us and keep growing uh, really are who keep the lights on and let us really do better and more entertaining content every episode and bring you more Masonic history. So if you guys like what you see, you can always go to the website, storkalite.com, click on support and through the various uh, support levels, you can get some really cool perks through the Patreon. So with that guys, let's dive in. I really want to know kind of first and foremost, uh, what's the history behind the Scottish Rite Masonic uh, Museum and Library? When did it get started? So uh, I'll kick the I'll kick the conversation off, and then I'll let Hillary and Jeff uh, add in. So the the uh, museum and library was a uh, it was a an idea a concept of uh, George Newbery, uh, and the uh, person that really affected the entire project was Stanley uh, Maxwell. They're both past sovereign grand commanders of our of our northern Masonic jurisdiction. Uh, the our headquarters for our Scottish Rite was uh, located uh, in 1964 in the Statler Building in Boston. And at that time, they formed a committee. Uh, George Newbery formed a committee and decided that they would look for some property outside of Boston uh, to relocate the, the Northern Masonic Jurisdiction Supreme Council. Uh, so Stanley uh, Max, Maxwell uh, was the one that found, actually located and found the property. He was instrumental in in uh, purchasing the property and then developing the, the property, the buildings on the property uh, down the road. So the uh, we moved our Supreme Council headquarters out to an existing building uh, in Lexington uh, in 1968, I believe it was. And then uh, we uh, shortly after that uh, worked with the town of Lexington uh, to put all the proper permits in place to uh, begin construction on a a museum and library. It was to be a building uh, that was uh, to be a bicentennial gift given in 1975 to the uh, to the American people, essentially by 32nd degree Scottish Rite Masons. Uh, was dedicated in 1975 by uh, Sovereign Grand Commander George Newbury at the end of his term, uh, and uh, was Stanley uh, Maxwell that uh, really uh, brought the brought the institution to light shortly thereafter. Uh, so the so the building built in 1975, 74 and 75, and dedicated in 75 is now coming up on its 50th anniversary. Uh, so we're looking to kind of do some special celebrations uh, at that point in time in 2025, and uh, uniquely at the very same time is the 250th anniversary for the beginning of the American Revolution, uh, right where we are in Lexington, Massachusetts. So that's a little bit about the building. Hillary and Jeff can add a, a little bit more if they'd like, but that's that's the basis of how we came to Lexington. Fantastic. Hillary, Jeff, what else you guys got? So from the, from the library side, um, as, as Rich was saying, the, the museum opened in 1975 and the actual collection of the uh, museum's library had started before the actual uh, Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library uh, opened because the Supreme Council itself, the governing body of the Scottish Rite, had been building their own library. Uh, and this had been going on since the 19th century and okay. into the early 20th century. And in the 1930s, they really started to organize their library. And this continued uh on until uh, the 1970s when the museum was open and a collection of material came from the Supreme Council into the new uh, museum and library building. And so um, we continue to add to the collection today. So over the past uh, almost 50 years, we've been continuing to add material to the collection, both by gift and by uh, purchase. But we, uh, we actually um, began life by having a uh, a collection of material already when the when the museum opened and um 
and we're open to the public today, I can I can get more into who we serve and what we do uh, as we go along in the conversation. But uh, from the history point of view, uh, we were we were lucky to have a collection that already existed when when the museum opened. Fantastic. Hillary, anything for you? Uh, yeah, on the on the museum side, it's a different story. So uh, sure. in terms of three dimensional objects, fine art, regalia, jewels, things like that, that we uh, that we collect actively today. And we have in our collection now about 25,000 uh, things. Wow. Uh, in the beginning, uh, Jeff and I were debating this. We could, could we say there's no collection or was it just a small collection? The fact of the matter is uh, the museum started and its object collection was more along, uh, was basically, uh, it seems to have been gifts that have been given to different sovereign grand commanders. So it was a very okay. small group of things. And then right after the museum opened, they started making purchases. They received all kinds of uh, donations from members of the public. And you know, over time, we've been a little more systematic about it. And but uh, it started it started from the object side, not with very little. So we've really shaped that in the last almost fifty years. That's fantastic. That's that's really interesting with the the sovereign grand commander kind of gifts where it started from, and then seeing where it grows into today. So I, I'm curious as we as we move along here um, on the museum and the library side, what are some of the uh, more impressive items that you guys have within the collections that kind of blew you guys away? Well, on the library and archive side, I would say that the um, I can give you a few examples. Uh, one is an object that a lot of people who are interested in the Scottish Rite have probably heard about, which is the Franken manuscript. Uh, and yes. this is this is the uh, 1783 uh, Franken manuscript. Uh, the, what this is uh, is a manuscript, handwritten book of rituals uh, that was written out in 1783 in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, by a man named Henry Andrew Franken. And the reason why so many people are interested in it uh, is because these are the earliest uh, existing English language versions of rituals beca which became Scottish Rite rituals. So this, these rituals predate the founding of the Scottish Rite in 1801. But when the Scottish Rite um, was formed in 1801, uh, some of the rituals that were brought into the degrees, the degree system of the Scottish Rite uh, came from this, uh, sometimes called the Order of the Royal Secret, uh, sometimes called the Rite of Perfection, which were the rituals within uh, the Franken manuscript, uh, which is a degree system of degrees four through 25. So um, it's a, it's a, any, for anyone who's interested in the history of ritual, uh, especially Scottish Rite ritual, it's sort of the the text that people are interested in. And it was published um, in a facsimile form uh, a few years ago by the Supreme Council. So it's very accessible outside of our museum and library. Um, but when people come and visit and we want to show them some of the highlights of the collection, uh, the Franken manuscript is always a wonderful thing that we can uh, bring out to them. And another example I would just give right now is um, we have some wonderful uh, uh, Masonic documents from the 18th century, from the 1700s. And one of the ones that I particularly love and I love to show people when I have the opportunity to do a little show and tell of treasures from our collection is a lodge summons uh, from 1768. Uh, and this is a lodge summons that was uh, printed, uh, engraved and sold by Paul Revere. Uh, the famous Paul Revere of the American Revolutionary period, um, who was also a Mason. He was a Mason uh, in the Lodge of St. Andrew in Boston, and he uh, eventually became Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts in the 1790s. And what's so special about this, um, this Masonic summons is not only was it printed by uh, Paul Revere, but it, during the same year that this particular uh, copy of the summons that we have was issued, he was also secretary of the lodge. And so the document's also signed by Paul Revere in his capacity as uh, secretary of the lodge. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a great uh, object in terms of, um, you know, one, th one thing about uh, historical objects, I think is that, you know, you get a sense of, wow, this person that I've heard about in history was involved in the making of this document. And I think that's one of those where, you know, you can sort of look at it in a couple of ways in terms of how Paul Revere was uh, involved in the making of this document. And it sort of, it sort of 
I think it's a, an accessible way to, to connect to Masonic history. So, so those are just a couple, a couple of many examples that I could give of uh, some of the wonderful things in the library and archive side of the collection. That's fantastic. Uh, Hillary, how about you? How about something that uh, you found in the library or archives that's kind of nerded you out a little bit? Uh, well, uh, let's see. I'm a soft touch, so I, I come across great things every day, which which is wonderful. We have uh, all different kinds of objects in in the in the museum collection. We have a wonderful collection of Masonic quilts, and those are terrific because we often know who the makers were, and it's and we when we do interpretation of those objects, we can understand more about how Freemasonry was a family organization and how uh, you know how that looked in different parts of the country. We also have a fabulous collection of different kinds of engraved jewels. And often because those have a name on them or the name of a lodge, you can really connect to a personal story. We have some wonderful photographs uh, and uh, those often are another avenue to explore how Freemasonry spread across the country. We uh, just uh, last year we were doing some work on a photograph and, and you just never know what you're going to uncover. And it turned out the sitter was a, uh, a pioneer in the California wine industry. And, and it was just, it was a case of who knew. And so we have a lot of those kinds of things. And it's always, the more research we do, the more we can put these objects into context and hopefully tell an engaging story with our exhibitions and publications. That's fantastic. Rich, how about you? With uh, with your background in Freemasonry, what what do you see while you go to work that's like, wow? <laughs> you know, there there are so many special things in the in the collection in both the archives and the and the collection side of uh, what we do. <clears throat> what makes this special for me, Alex, is is when we have individuals or groups come in, and I take a step back and watch the staff share these items with with individuals and groups. And the, the passion that Hillary and Jeff and the rest of the staff have uh, when when they're able to share these items, uh, it just it's, it's in my mind, it's just so exciting to watch. And when people are able to stand beside some of these items, these documents and these pieces from the collection and hear the stories that are, that are the history behind these items, it makes it very, very special. And as we work each and every day, these are the things that we want to do in a better fashion uh, for the future of our, our fraternity and for our museum and library is find ways that we can get all of these things in front of more people uh, so they can get excited about them the same way Hillary and Jeff do every time they, they talk and show. Uh, so they kind of show and tell for them. And I get excited watching them and, and, and sharing in their passion when they have those opportunities to share those stories. That's fantastic. Well, I want to kind of get to know a little bit more about the operation of the Scottish Rite uh, Museum and Library there and really understand what you guys have going on and kind of the plans for the future. And then hopefully towards the end of the episode, uh, maybe pick your guys' brains a little bit for those dealing with their own lodge collections and how they can maybe take some advice from you guys. So uh, tell me about what what's the operation you guys got going on right now? What's What's your plans and what are your plans for the future? Go ahead, Jeff. Sure. So uh, on the library and archive side, um, the main thing we do, right, is we, we make sure that we can um, provide access to this material, uh, preserve this material so that uh, down the road, many years down the road, this material will still be available. It'll be in good condition. People can still access it. So, you know, day to day, um, a lot of what we do is we answer reference questions. So if people have questions, sometimes people get in touch because they have an object they want to learn more about, or sometimes they have an ancestor who was a Freemason and they want to learn how they can learn more about what this person did, what lodge they belong to, etc. Uh, or they may be interested in something very specific from our collection. So we're always available to uh, make sure we can answer reference questions in a timely manner and uh, usually try to help people out so if someone sends us an email or gives us a call, if there's something we can do to, you know, scan a few pages from a book to send to them, uh, we're happy to do that sort of thing. And then sometimes if people are doing in-depth research, uh, they need to come on site, which is always fun because they come into our reading room, we pull material for them so they can look through these um, archival material or books on their own and do research in our reading room. 
And then, of course, you know, we we have to do the day to day work of uh, acquiring new material. So purchasing new material, receiving donations from uh, generous donors who are willing to donate material to us that we don't have. Uh, and then the um, less exciting work, but very important work of cataloging material so that people can actually find what we have. So, you know, it's great to have a room full of books, but if you don't know what's in the room, then uh, it's difficult to access the material. So one of the things, you know, we're very fortunate. We have a lot of resources. So we have staff, uh, we have funding. You know, this is not something that every Masonic collection has. In fact, right. it's, uh, it's unfortunately quite rare. Uh, so we're very fortunate that we have had for so many years uh, continued funding and staffing to be able to do this kind of work because it's a lot of work to uh, just do simple things like um, process material so that it gets cataloged, it gets put on the shelf. So that way, when someone comes into the library and says, I'm looking for this book, you can look it up in the catalog, you can find the call number, you can go to the shelf and find the book and pull it write down and give it to someone so they can sit down and look at it. It's, you know, you sort of, you can take it for granted when you're on the side of the person who walks up and asks the person in the library, can I look at this book? But there's a lot of work that sort of goes on uh, behind the scenes to do that. So, so day to day, there's a lot of that, but then we do a uh, thing. We have a couple of cases, exhibition cases in the reading room uh, of our library. So we like to uh, program those cases uh, for about, Six months every year. We'll, for six months, we'll have um, a couple of cases. Right now, we have um, Scottish Rite reunion programs dating from about 1880 till uh, the mid 20th century. So uh, these sort of help tell a little bit of the, the story of Scottish Rite reunions uh, over the past almost 100 years. Uh, and it's a great way to just be able to um, get some of the material that people may not be able to see on a day-to-day -day basis because so many of collections are on shelves or in, in boxes and and put them out so that people can see them and we can do a little bit of interpretation as to what this material is why it's interesting uh, what you can learn from it um, and then uh, soon we'll be doing a, a uh, we'll be taking those materials out of the cases and doing uh, putting in new acquisition material, because we also, every six months or so, every year or so, we like to highlight uh, new acquisitions that have come uh, into the Library and Archives collection. Uh, and it's just a great way of sort of showing people uh, what we're what we're acquiring now and new stuff that we're building, because there's always, you know, there's always new stuff that we're interested in adding to the collection, whether that new stuff is actually a new book about Freemasonry that someone published, or it's uh, a very old book that we don't have in the collection yet that we, that we like to add. So, um, so those are just um, a handful of the activities. We also have, I can talk about more about this later, but we, we've digitized some material as well. And so there's been some material that, some work that we've done on the, on the digital side in terms of providing uh, access to um, digital collections from the uh, library and archives. So that's a, uh, a little bit of an overview of the kind of thing that goes on in the library and archives uh, day to day. That's fantastic. Sadly, you're bumming me out a little bit because I'm not close enough to uh, come and be that nerd that uh, bugs you guys every day because that sounds amazing to sit in a reading room and have you guys bring all these manuscripts to me so I can uh, nerd out there. Uh, so, so wondering like accessibility, who's able to come and utilize that and like what's, what's the cost involved for someone to come in and, and do research? Sure. So I'm happy to say that there is no cost involved and anyone who would like can come in. Um, Fantastic. We're open, to, we're open to the public uh, and uh, the museum, the library and archives reading room is located right off of uh, Travis Hall, which is the, the sort of main lobby of the museum. So we're very easy to find when people come in the museum. And in fact, one of the bonuses of having a library that's in such a, uh, uh, such a space that is very um, uh, accessible is that we can have people that uh come into the uh we can have people that come into the um the reading room and uh they don't necessarily know anything about the library and archives and they um they come in and they, they ask what's going on and uh i'm gonna hand this over to hillary for just a second yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Well, just like uh, just like Jeff was saying, we we deal with uh, inquiries sort of on an operations basis. We deal with inquiries. We are happy to help people with different kinds of questions about their own or family collections or their collections in their lodger valley. But we also put a lot of time and effort into exhibitions. We have two galleries and we also have some uh, corridor exhibition area and some other ca display cases throughout the museum. And uh, that is, uh, I work in the collections department with an assistant curator, a collections manager, and a curatorial assistant. And we often work with outside designers and photographers and other people. And we put a lot of effort into creating exhibitions that hopefully offer a uh, kind of sweep people up, tell a story, uh, get people to learn something, uh, but mostly what we would love people to feel when they go through their, our exhibitions are engaged, have their curiosity sparked. Um, and right now our big exhibition is uh, Masonic Hall of Fame, Extraordinary Freemasons in American History. And that is something that people can come see uh, and at the museum and it could take, you know, if you work at it, you could take an hour to go through there or you could take 20 minutes. Uh, it depends on your style as a museum goer, but it reflects uh, quite a bit of work. And so day to day, a lot of a lot of our work is uh, preparing for those kinds of those kinds of projects, in addition to dealing with um, inquiries about possible donations or history questions that come in, which we love because we always learn something new from those. That's fantastic. It sounds like uh, quite the facility you guys got there. And again, I'm I'm going to have to make it back up there in person. I was sharing in the green room that I was lucky enough to get up for one of the Masonicon, well, actually several of the Masonicon events at mm -hmm. uh, Ezekiel Bates Lodge in Attleboro and had the chance to go uh, visit the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, but I did not get a chance to go visit your guys' facility. So that is on the, on the list to do. I'm going to have to make it back over there because I'm really really a fan of uh that part of the country especially all the history you guys have in that area uh, which is quite amazing so on the list can't wait to get there and see it in person for sure so i'd like to uh, share a little bit more about the facility if i could alex yeah go for it so uh in addition to the exhibitions in the museum and library we also have uh, at the facility a 390 seat auditorium it's a state-of-the-art auditorium wow. uh we have a separate conference uh, center, which will also seat a couple of hundred people. Uh, and that building now houses uh, all three corporations that are related to our Supreme Council. So the fraternal portion of, of the, uh, of the uh, which is our Supreme Council, uh, the Children's Dyslexia Centers uh, Corporation, as well as the Museum and Library Corporation, all three corporations are now housed under that, that one roof. Uh, Back in 2012, uh, 2011, the decision was made that we sell the property that was originally purchased for the Supreme Council headquarters and relocate. So we took two of the exhibition uh, halls in, in the uh, museum and library, uh, much to the dismay of the staff, uh, but it, uh, it, it has worked out to be uh, a substantial benefit, I think, for all of the corporations. We're now under one roof. We've saved considerable finances by doing so. Uh, part of my responsibilities is working with all the departments for the museum and library to create budgets for everything that we do there, as well as oversee the facility itself. Uh, it's a first. It's a first-class facility. We've kept it, even though it's a 48-year-old building. We've kept that building uh, in in great uh, condition, and it's something that uh, every mason can be very, very proud of. Uh, we are now. Uh, neighbors to uh, the town of Lexington. They bought the building that we sold and that's a community center and we have a great relationship with the town of Lexington. We're working uh, now on uh, being becoming a part of uh, an established uh, cultural district which they're creating in the town of Lexington. Uh, so we certainly hope that anybody that's in the area can come and visit uh, for all of those reasons. Uh, in addition to the, the museum and the library, uh, the all of the things that we do with the exhibitions and uh, our collection. And for those people uh, that are, are visiting, if you're if you're in a small group or if we know that uh, you're coming as an individual and we have a little bit of uh, notice ahead of time, we, we can make some special accommodations and perhaps show you some of the things that uh, may not out, be out on display at, at that point in time. So uh, we, we invite 
people to stop by. We're open five days a week. Uh, and one Saturday, and now that we're past COVID, uh, we, we decided we would get back to Saturdays as well. So we're open one Saturday a month. And all of those dates are on our, our, our website for people to uh, check out. That's fantastic. So I'd like to kind of pick your guys' brain a little bit from a professional standpoint on, on libraries and museum and archive, um, because we have a lot of people watching the show uh, that have items within their lodge, uh, Masonic records within their lodge that some don't know what to do with, um, others don't want any part of it. Uh, so to kind of get your guys' uh, opinion here, um, what is the best way for a lodge to take on their uh, collections? Is it best to get them to someone like you or is there ways that they can preserve and archive that stuff themselves? Um, I guess the, the first question I think a lodge should ask itself is um, why are they keeping the material? Uh, which is, I, I don't say, uh, that sounds more sarcastic than I mean it to sound. Uh, it's a good question to ask because sometimes you might have a bunch of old books that you never look at. And right. the question is, what, why do we have these books and what, what do we hope to do with them? So that some questions are straightforward and easy. You have your lodge's records. You say, why do we have these, these materials? Well, it's the history of our lodge. We'd like to keep them. It's, uh, obviously a vital part of telling the story of where we've been and where we're going. So, uh, so I think that's, it depends, it depends how much stuff you have, but I feel like that's the first question is to really look at everything and say, why, why do we have this material? Is there anything, is there anything here that we don't want to keep? And if so, do, where do we want to try to find a home for it? Now, like I said, if you're looking at your, your actual records, your, uh, ledgers, your minute books and so forth, you're going to want to keep that material, presumably. Um, I think the, the next thing you can do, well, I'll, I will say, as a sort of aside here, a plug, we did, the Museum and Library did put together a booklet called uh, Caring for Your Masonic Treasures, which is available as a, a PDF uh, booklet on the museum's website. And it answers a lot of these questions, mostly focusing on uh, paper material, uh, but because we get these questions all the time, right? We get, we get uh, so many lodges, understandably, they're in old buildings, they don't have people who are working with them who have a background in dealing with uh, documents. And so we get questions all the time of what am I supposed to do with this material? How do I take care of it? I want to do the right thing. And so the museum staff decided, well, uh, as a start, we could put together this very basic uh, booklet that answers some of these questions in terms of where should I store material? How should I store material? And so, you know, things... and. and it helps you ask certain questions that you may not know to ask. Like, for example, where am I storing this material in the building? Is there a better place I can store it? So you might, right. you might realize, oh, we're storing this, you know, under some pipes next to the radiator. You know, we could move this material from a place where there could be a potential um, incident that would uh, ruin these materials, make it, uh, make them not viable for the future uh, and put them in a better a better place uh, within just the building we have. Uh, and then there's other things, depending on what kind of resources you have, there's other things you might be able to do, such as put them in certain kinds of archival boxes, which will help protect them as well. Uh, again, looking at the conditions of the the temperature and the humidity in the rooms of the of the lodge that you have that there's likely to be some rooms that are better than others for storing the material um and we're always happy to get specific questions so if people have questions you know we we're happy to we encourage people to get in touch with us and say you know here's the situation i'm dealing with could you give me a little bit of advice i also always tell people that if if they are lucky enough to be near uh and have some sort of relationship with people who work in library and archives who may not be Masons, reach out to those people and talk to them because a lot of them are enthusiastic about caring for all kinds of materials. And so they, they also locally might be able to uh, partner with you and, and help you out as well because they're, they're interested in um, preserving all kinds of uh, heritage materials, including Masonic materials. So, um, so I would say starting with the Caring for Your Masonic Treasures booklet is a, is a great place to start because it also um, contains some links out to some further resources where you can get more in-depth, um, good information about how to uh, store particular kinds of uh, documents and, and books. And um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Hillary. 
Oh, I think that was that was a, a good a good summary. I I lodges do have a wonderful historic material, and I think ultimately, as Jeff was saying, if uh, the best thing that a or one of the best things a lodge can do is really identify the things that they want to keep, they want to preserve, that are core to their identity, and focus their resources on understanding and preserving those, and that will uh, help them perhaps let go of some other things that maybe are not as germane to the telling their, telling their story or, uh, you know, uh, that will help them focus their resources. It also helps if you get a few enthusiasts uh, in a lodge that really take on um, just sort of take on this as a, as their sort of part of their work at the lodge. Cause every, when I go out to lodges, I feel like I'm often meeting the person who said, this is a great history. I'm going to work hard to preserve it and disseminate it. And uh, it, it makes people feel special about the organization that they're part of. That's fantastic insight. So one thing I'm sitting here thinking about, because when I go to some lodges that do have a neat collection, it's typically always the same collection, always sitting there, always out. But in a more professional stance, uh, going to a museum, like we were talking, um, you guys have uh, certain displays at certain times that are rotated out. And is there benefit to rotating that out beyond just uh, trying to show everything you have? You mean a benefit from the objects? For the yeah, as, as far as like uh, preserving them, is there a benefit not to leaving the items out all the time uh, versus uh, just swapping out displays to show different objects? Well, luckily you can do both. Uh, so you okay. can tell, tell a new story and also change the objects you're using to you know tell a story and it is of a benefit to the object. You know, uh, an example is Masonic aprons. In, in New England, you often find uh, in many lodges examples of framed silk or often printed on silk aprons from the 18-teens, 1820s that have been framed in the same spot for many years. That is not, it's great because people love looking at them. It's not great for, for the preservation of the object. So if an organization has a chance to switch things, switch things around, perhaps swap out the apron with an image of the apron sometimes that will help contribute to the long-term preservation of that kind of an object. You know, typically paper, textiles, some kinds of photographs, if they're printed on paper, uh, those are the kinds of things that are vulnerable to uh, being exposed to light for a long time. But uh, it's a little bit like what Jeff was saying, the largest, the biggest investment any lodge can make in the, the uh, the preservation of their historic material and even their building is climate control. And that's a fantastic point. That, that sometimes is a big, you know, it's hard in historic buildings. So you're, you're sparking a, a little bit of curiosity in my brain here talking about framed aprons um, yeah. because I might be able to see right there, which it blends in. Um, but that's yeah. actually my great, great grandfather's master Mason apron. Um, mm -hmm. And I was actually installed as master of my lodge wearing that apron because I didn't know it existed until a random holiday when it was handed on to me. Um, yeah. But I put it in that frame and now you've got me wondering what is the best way uh, to preserve an apron? Uh, well, uh, in a sort of a sweeping statement, every apron's a little bit different. Uh, keep it flat. Don't handle it much. Keep it away from heat and, and water. And most of all, keep it away from, from light. From light. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and you usually want to store those kinds of things flat rather than vertically, like your framed one. Interesting. Very well. So, the, um, you know, a lot of times when masons are given their their master mason apron it, it and I, I think it's just the convenience of the case it comes in but we see these you know cylinder tubes that they come in and you always you know put those up and i always tell people don't do that because uh for one those uh i guess the the leather type material likes to hold that position and then whenever you need it it just wants to curl up but obviously it's it's better to have it flat so in a historical standpoint of trying to preserve that would those cylinders really do more damage than good in long-term situation? Uh, well, I don't want to speak poorly for the cylinders, but uh, yes, they, they they do not contribute to the long-term preservation of the aprons. Uh, yeah, and almost depending, you know, 
regardless of what kind of material the apron's made out of, be it um, leather, be it, uh, be it some kind of textile. Uh, it's also, if you think about if anything's stored in a, in a coral shape like that, if it has paint on it, like old, old apron yeah. from the early 1800s that have a painted surface, the paint and the, the leather or textile that it's, that it was put on are not going to age in the same way and behave in the same way in different environments. So if you curl them up like that, they're going to be at war with each other. So uh, I would say keep it flat, but I understand, you know, these things are not always practical. And uh, here in New England, I see a lot of people that carry their apron in sort of a briefcase style apron. Right. And those, you can do worse with those than those. Uh, those work pretty well for aprons because you can store things flat. But the thing to look at is the materials that are used on the inside uh, to, to make sure that they're inert. Fantastic. We're getting a, a couple comments over on the uh, Facebook side. We got Ryan Flynn, who's a Masonic artist up in the uh, Northeast there. And he's saying, so in other words, not on your wall, you're letting your great, great grandpappy down, Alex. I guess I'm going to have to find another place to store that apron. <laughs> and then we got uh, brother Kenneth Beeler on here saying, I've never actually looked at the books in our lodge. I'm going to have to take some time to do so. So that's fantastic. We are, we are sparking the interest to actually dive into lodge records here and uh, see what we have and how we can best preserve that. So that's fantastic. All right, so I'd like to hear some more about the uh, the Scottish Rite Museum and Library and what maybe your plans are moving into the future. So I'll, I'll start on that. So uh, we have we have Hillary mentioned our, our Hall of Fame exhibition, which which is uh, in place right now. It's the second year of what was planned to be three years, which is actually four, uh, because we'll be we've inducted. Uh, 10 famous Masons the first year. Uh, we just inducted uh, five more this past uh, October, November, and we'll be inducting five more famous Masons uh, in this coming October. Uh, and so that will become a, a essentially a, a four-year exhibition. Uh, and we're working now on how we can establish uh, essentially preserving that exhibition so that it can be, it can be a continuing exhibition without probably being a physical exhibition. Uh, we don't want to limit the things that we have the opportunity to share uh, by continuing that exhibition as a physical exhibition. So we'll be uh, working uh, with some of the Supreme Council staff uh, that that uh, do some of the video work uh, for, for our museum and library to figure out how we can best preserve this exhibition and continue to share it as we go down the road. Uh, we're, we're working, uh, as I mentioned earlier, on, on uh, putting some events together to celebrate the 50th anniversary of our institution and the 250th anniversary of the uh, beginning of the American Revolution in the town of Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh, we're always looking for uh, new, new pieces to consider for both the archives and the collection. Uh, some of these are gifted, uh, and we do have a limited budget that the staff has uh, at, at their uh, at their, at the use for their uh, consideration to purchase items that they may find out uh, in the open market, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it would be great if we had more funds to uh, try to preserve and save some of these things as they come along. Unfortunately, we don't have all the money in the world to be able to buy those things and protect and preserve them. Uh, and we hope that uh, the things that we're not able to protect and preserve, somebody else is, is stepping up and, and doing the right thing for those items. Uh, Hillary and Hillary and Jeff are, are working diligently uh, with their collections to try to uh, essentially accumulate data and put it uh, in, a, in a format and fashion that we can better share all of this information, uh, whether it's photos or, or digital data. Uh, uh, scans of documents, all of those things. Uh, we're, we're working uh, on a long-term plan to be able to get more of those items uh, out to people that can't physically come and visit our institution. So, uh, and I'll let I'll let both Hillary and Jeff share a little bit more about the processes that they're they're using right now uh, as we work towards those endeavors. 
Yeah, that would be fantastic. Sure. Well, we, um, Jeff, do you mind if I go? Go right ahead. All right. So we try to, Alex, you mentioned, for example, that you are, you know, you, you don't live in New England, so you're not able to come uh, to the museum as frequently as you might like. And you are not alone. We have a lot of, but we do have a lot of digital resources. We have a database uh, online uh, on our website, a searchable database of several thousand objects from the museum's uh, object collection. And that allows people to kind of dip in, sort of see the sorts of things that we have and uh, find out if, it, if they would like to come to the museum or if the museum could possibly help them with a research question. We also have a, a blog that we've been working on for uh, since the dawn of time, really, uh, which was what, 2008? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and that is, uh, that's another way that people find, people find us. They don't come physically, but they find us on the blog because we've been uh, writing uh, small and sort of basically interpretive articles about different items in the museum and library collection over time and people will find us, they'll come with questions and we get a surprising number of inquiries through those, those different ways. So uh, for us on the museum side, the biggest, um, one of the investments we make in staff time is to try to photograph and catalog material when it comes into the museum as, as well and as ex expeditiously as we can and then get it out there on our website so people can you know, start to see what we have. And that's one of the ways that we reach people that we're not able to see in person. But then Jeff, on the library side, they do it a whole different way. So Jeff, maybe you wanna talk about sure. that. Sure. So, um, so on the library and archive side, we have a digital collections uh, website for the library and archives, which currently consists of almost a thousand objects that we digitized and cataloged. Uh, and mostly all of the material on that site is from our archives collection because we made a decision. We started doing this around 2015, I believe. Uh, and although we have lots of resources, uh, we still, uh, when you start looking at a digitization project, we had, you know, we had to work within our means in terms of what resources we had, meaning, uh, mostly meaning staff, uh, because it's a labor intensive thing to do because, you know, scanning, Scanning material is step one. Uh, having digital images is fantastic. Uh, but if you want people to be able to find them, then you need to create some metadata, some cataloging so that people can, can find what this material is. And that is the less exciting, labor-intensive part of things, uh, but very important in terms of trying to provide access to the material. So, uh, so because we were looking to get the most bang for our buck, we sort of focused a on archives materials because they're unique as opposed to uh, library materials, which are you know published materials usually and usually published in the hundreds or thousands. Whereas most archival material, um, even things like uh, Masonic uh, diplomas, certificates, uh, if they're printed, they're still unique because they're filled out to an individual. And so we decided, well, let's let's try to focus our endeavors on unique material uh, and also material that like Masonic certificates, uh, which is a single object rather than, you know, digitizing a book of minutes. So rather than digitizing a book of minutes that's 100 pages long, we could digitize X number of Masonic certificates. The Masonic certificates also have a lot of visual interest, uh, I think, as well. So they, they're very interesting to look at online. So we have uh, a few hundred Masonic certificates that we've digitized. And then we have other, lots of other different kinds of material, material related to um, the American Civil War and Freemasonry, uh, women in Freemasonry, uh, a, a number of different sort of uh, subject areas where we've, it's, it's, it's not a uh, very in-depth look at our collections, but it gives you a sense of some of the things that are in our collections uh, and provides some access to them. Uh, and so, um, so, what we don't have and what we're going to be working on in the future, since you were talking about future plans, uh, is on the archive side, we don't have very good um, access to information about the collections that we can share with the public. So, for example, uh, on the library side, we have a library catalog. So if you go to the museum's website, you go to the library catalog, you can search to find out if we have a book and the library catalog will say, yes, you have this book. 
And so about over 90% of the, I would say close to 100% now of the library's collection uh, has been cataloged and is in the catalog. So we pretty much know if it's, if you don't find it in the catalog, we're pretty certain that we don't have that particular book. Um, what we haven't done over the years is provide as much access to the archives collections. And so this year, we're really going to try to focus our efforts more on that. Uh, and um, we are we're looking at using a software called Archive Space, which was developed by archivists uh, to provide access to archives collections. It's something that a lot of archives use. Uh, and so this will essentially be like a catalog uh, for the archives collections. So it won't be, uh, it, it will link to some digitized material, but it's it, you have to think of it a little bit more like a library catalog that it tells you more about what material we have. So it'll tell you, yes, we have uh, the minute books of a particular fraternal organization. And this is how many of them we have. And these are the years that they cover. Uh, and then if someone's interested in looking at them, uh, then they're able to do that because they know it exists because the, the problem with collections that are not cataloged is they're hidden. You know, no one knows that they exist unless you provide information about them. Uh, because that's the only way you're going to, you're going to find them. So, so, uh, we're we're looking to uh, to do that this in the coming years uh, in order to provide a lot more access to the archives collection uh, than we've been able to do in the in the past. That's fantastic. So we're about nine minutes to the top of the hour. I want to give you guys a chance uh, to go around with some final comments of anything that you want to get out for the public to know about your facility and operations. Uh, Hillary, if we can start with you. Well, thanks for the opportunity. We love people to, first of all, know that we're here and that we, uh, it's a resource. If you're interested in Masonic history, please, you know, explore. If you have questions, please get in touch. Sometimes I dazzle people because they call and I pick up the phone and they're <laughs> expecting uh, to leave a message. And, uh, but we're, you know, if you can catch us, we're happy to help you on the phone by email. We also, and I think Alex, that you first got in touch with us over our Facebook Yes, definitely. Page. So we have Facebook, Instagram, the blog that I mentioned, lots of ways to connect. And I'm always interested in hearing um, about what people's passions are related to Masonic history, be it something that they just found uh, in, in their family history or a research project that they're working on for a paper that they're giving to a lodge, anything like that. So we're... Uh, I guess what I'm saying is uh, we'd love to hear from people if they you know, have questions and would like to engage with us. Fantastic. Uh, Rich, how about you? So uh, I'd like to share a, a couple of other things that yeah, we're doing definitely. at the museum and library. Uh, so we do have a, a researcher that does uh, some research work and, and also uh, does some uh, transcribing and uh, uh Right now, so his name is Kamel Useyev, and, and Kamel's doing, uh, working on kind of an interesting uh, project right now. There's uh, uh, some Swiss manuscripts that are actually written in French, a uh, period of about 1875, and that is uh, a series of the 33 Scottish Rite degrees from that period in time. So uh, Kamel's uh, actually uh, translating these documents, and then... Uh, writing a commentary uh, about these these 33 uh, Scottish Rite degrees from the period of 1875 that are written in French, uh, found in, in Swiss documents. So uh, that that will be Kamel's next book. I think it's going to be very, very interesting. Uh, and we're, we're doing this so that we can take a look at, you know, where where the where the 33 degrees have come from uh, over, over the course of time. How, how have they changed? Uh, what was uh, possibly significant in these degrees then that may not be so significant today. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be a pretty interesting uh, piece for people to take a look at when Kamel is finished with that. Uh, just to talk a little bit more about the, the work at the museum and library, you know, all of these things take uh, time and resources, finances, the things that Jeff and Hillary just talked about with the collections. Uh, and we we want to do all that we can to, to bring them to the public in a better fashion. Uh, and and the, the staff with the resources that they currently have does an absolutely terrific job with this. Uh, we would love to have 
you know, additional people and additional finances to be able to do this in a quicker fashion and, and certainly uh, a more favorable fashion so that uh, people can use these assets. Uh, but unfortunately, we're limited uh, as any business is. And I commend the staff on on all of the work that they do uh, to that that has gotten us to the point where we are today and, and their plans for the future to continue to bring the, all of these assets uh, more to the forefront for the public and, and our brothers across, not only across the country, but across the world. Uh, so those, those are a, a couple of things that I did want to mention, Alex, and I certainly appreciate uh, your the opportunity to, to, to share those extra things here tonight as well. Oh, pleasure's all mine. Having you guys on has been absolutely amazing. Uh, Jeff, any final comments from you? Uh, sure. I just want to build on uh, what Hillary was saying uh, in terms of getting in touch with us. I, I, yeah. I feel like Sometimes people are a little shy about getting in touch. They're worried about bothering people. You know, before I was a librarian, I was always worried about bothering the librarian. And now that I've been a librarian for over 25 years, I can guarantee you that librarians love to have you get in touch. So I, I would definitely encourage people if they have questions, if they have any interests, to get in touch with us, to call us, to get in touch with us through Facebook, to email us, because we are always happy to try to help people with any question they have, no matter how small, how confusing it might be. Uh, you, you just, you have not met people more enthusiastic about Freemasonry that are not Freemasons than the people <laughs> that work at the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library. We will talk your ear off and listen to you talk about Freemasonry and the history of Freemasonry because it's a passion we have and we do it, you know, 40 hours a week. And it's, uh, we love hearing from people. And like Hillary said, we like to hear about people's research interests. So, you know, get in touch if you have a question and don't be shy about it. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, definitely. So, um, after this, be sure you guys send me an email. I want to make sure that we have all the contact info and we will make sure to get that in the show notes on all the different platforms, uh, including the uh, audio podcast side, uh, because that's really one heck of an offer, guys, because we see all the time on social media and stuff. Everyone's asking these questions. And a lot of us, like myself, uh, maybe take little archival courses here and there and we, we figure it out. Um, but here you've got professionals, not even just in the Mason world, but actually professionals in the industry offering their advice to you and an open ear. So that's that's quite the offer. And I hope people will definitely get in contact, uh, take you up on that offer and uh, make it out to see this in person. I know I'm going to. It's definitely on my list. So with that, guys, we are about at the top of the hour and we typically end our episodes uh, with a toast. Uh, if wouldn't you wouldn't mind to offer up a toast for this evening. So I'd be happy to do that, Alex. Uh, and I'm going to do so with uh, my glass from MasonicCon that uh, I attended <laughs> earlier this year in Pan Manchester, New Hampshire with Ryan Flynn. Fantastic. With a little bit of single malt scotch. And, and I'd like to share a few words. A little bit of this comes from our new mission statement uh, that we just re revisited at the museum and library. So uh, with that said, I would like to propose a toast tonight. Uh, which shares much of the mission from the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library. Let's take this opportunity together to celebrate all groups and institutions whose mission is to engage and inspire uh, both the general public and members of our Masonic fraternity uh, by fostering the knowledge and appreciation of America's past, uh, Freemasonry and fraternalism. May we all continue to support the mission of Freemasonry and the significant role it offers in celebrating patriotism, fraternalism, and inclusion, as well as personal and civic virtues. Cheers. Here, here. Cheers. Cheers. Jeff, I don't know how anyone is going to follow up that toast on future episodes. You may have ruined the show. Congratulations. <laughs> no, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on this evening. And more just for your passion and what you do for Freemasonry, uh, especially with Hillary and Jeff, you guys not having that direct Masonic connection. I know this is a passion in, in your career. Um, and to have you guys as that professional asset, um, preserve the history of Freemasonry, um, both in the physical stance and the research stance and everything that that offers, uh, really does such a huge, um, favor to all of us um, because as guys like me know and so many watching the show so much of our history is just disappearing before our eyes 
So to have professionals like you that that care to this degree um, in your positions really means the world. And it's really one of the best things we can have. So thank you guys so much for all that you do. Well, thank you. Thank you for thank your, you. Uh, your enthusiasm and your interest. Most definitely. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Everyone that joined in live this evening over on the Facebook side, the YouTube side, thank you guys so much. And until next time, keep preserving the history of Freemasonry. We'll see you back in two weeks. Have a great evening.